Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about tobacco use in special population groups. And we'll start off by talking about cigarette use and tobacco use in pregnant women. Fergal, could you tell us a bit more about the harms and dangers associated with smoking whilst pregnant? Yeah, well, first of all, it's important to realise that women do smoke whilst they're pregnant. And we know that about, on, on average in Australia, about you know, 11% of people who are pregnant, or women who, who are pregnant, smoke. Uh, and that compares with the 11% of people in the population of Australia that smoke. Um, now, actually, Australia is quite good in that regard because, you know, so where I'm from in Ireland, the prevalence rates of smoking during pregnancy is as high as up to 38%. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very important issue to, to address. And when we're thinking about the risks of smoking in pregnancy, we need to understand the obstetric risks. We need to understand the fetal risks and we need to understand the uh, offspring risks. So if we, if we look at the obstetric risks, um, smoking is associated with multiple obstetric complications. But fundamentally, nicotine causes vasoconstriction. So you increase your vasoconstricting the, the placental arteries. You're increasing the vascular resistance of the placenta. So you're reducing the blood flow to the, to the baby. Because remember, the placental circulation is not autoregulated. So, so basically you've got a poor placental functioning. So you're at risk of, you know, basically preterm, premature, low birth weight and, um, complications like that. It's also associated with placenta previa, placental abruption, premature rupture of membranes, early pregnant, early delivery. And it's also associated with, uh, ectopic pregnancies. And, you know, so a wide range of potentially catastrophic events in pregnancy. So it's, it's, it's bad for pregnancy. If we look specifically at the fetal effects, I did allude to earlier that it, you know, it's associated with low birth weight, but it's tobacco is also a, uh, it also causes congenital birth defects. It also like things like club foot, cleft palate, anophthalmia or microphthalmia. It can cause optic nerve hypoplasia. It can cause heart defects. It can cause gastroschisis, cryptorchidism. You know, there's, again, there's a huge list of, of things that uh, smoking can in pregnancy can do to, to baby. And then we look at the effects in the offspring. So even if mum has stopped smoking after delivery, if mum smokes during pregnancy, we know that babies, newborns, are experiencing an, uh, an elevated risk of sudden infant death syndrome, obesity, type 2 diabetes, infertility, bronchitis, uh, pulmonary hypertension, asthma, hypertension. Again, the, the impact of smoking is pervasive during pregnancy and also into the next generation. So it's really, really uh, a high-risk practice, and we should be doing our level best to support mums to quit at any stage in pregnancy. So what, what's, what's your take on that, uh, Philippe, and how do you deal with someone who's, who's pregnant and smoking? Well, like you mentioned, Fergal, we would try and encourage uh, a, a woman who is pregnant at, uh, to stop smoking as soon as possible. And the best outcomes are associated with stopping smoking in the first trimester yeah. of pregnancy. However, 
stopping smoking any time during the pregnancy is is fantastic, and we would encourage uh, any woman to stop smoking at any time during during the pregnancy. The smoking cessation interventions that we would probably use during pregnancy are very similar to what we would use when a woman's not pregnant. However, there are a few caveats and there are a few medications we would not use, which we will discuss in, in a bit of time. But the first thing we would probably start with is, is counselling. There's strong evidence that you know intensive counselling in pregnancy is should be used as a first-line intervention, assess a woman's um, triggers for smoking and see if one can find behavioural uh, tools to alleviate the triggers that, that a woman would use for smoking. And then, I guess, dependent of, on if the woman was nicotine dependent, I would certainly offer nicotine replacement therapy as well. And this is historically has been used as a second-line intervention, but I'm not against using nicotine relatively aggressively in, in a woman who is pregnant. There is some thought that um, nicotine does cross the placenta and accumulate in, in the amniotic fluid, and there can be fetal effects associated with nicotine. However, we do know that if we stop a woman smoking during pregnancy, the overall benefits for the, the child are immense. And usually what we would use is pulsatile nicotine replacement therapy rather than that long-lasting nicotine replacement therapy via a patch. So usually if a woman's pregnant, one would more likely use the oral preparations such as gum, lozenges, and sprays rather than that constant um, nicotine de um, delivery via a topical patch. Would you, would you agree with those interventions, Fergal? Yeah, the, again, the very first line intervention has got to be counselling. And I think, you know, part of that counselling has got to uh, explain the harms of, uh, of smoking to mum and to fetus and also to neonate. But, you know, remember the whole idea about counselling is you take people through the cycle of change. So again, you know, the first stage is motivational interviewing. So beating, beating mums with a stick because of their smoking is just not the right approach. You have to use motivational interviewing techniques. And yes, the, the next step would be um, uh, nicotine replacement therapy. And you've mentioned that you, your first line is pulsatile nicotine replacement therapy. I, I've, I've changed my views a little bit with regards to pulsatile nicotine therapy. Certainly there was, there was guidance written that suggested that because of the risks of accumulation, you should be using as little uh, nicotine replacement therapy as possible to achieve the desired effect. And so, yeah, there was a vogue for, you know, low-dose NRT. More recently, however, I feel that, you know, we, we're now, at least I'm now understanding more the fact that, you know, mums, I think, uh, have altered volumes of distribution. And also, because of the placental enzyme function, they've also got, they also metabolize nicotine much more quickly. So I think, actually, that you need to give high doses or higher doses uh, of nicotine replacement therapy to mums than you would otherwise someone who was non-pregnant, simply because the risks of smoking vastly outweigh the risks of nicotine replacement therapy. So if you're taking a harm reduction approach, I think you need to give, or you need to be prepared to give more nicotine than you would otherwise uh, reasonably expect to pregnant women because they go through the nicotine more quickly, I think. So... Previously, I was a little bit cautious when my, with my prescribing for nicotine replacement therapy, but more recently, I'm a lot more 
liberal and generous with it because the bottom line is I'd much rather mum have nicotine replacement therapy than smoke. And, I, and I'm happy to go through the risks of nicotine replacement therapy versus smoking to mums to, to make some kind of considered decision. Fair enough. Now, varenicline, bupropion, and nortriptyline are not recommended in pregnancy. They are respectively B2, B3, and category C as per the um, the TGA restrictions on, on safety in pregnancy, so not recommended. However, smoking is also pretty significantly damaging to the fetus. What's yeah. your approach with varenicline, bupropion, and nortriptyline in pregnancy for a woman who's smoking Fergal? Yeah, um, we give lots of drugs, whether category B and category C in pregnancy. And if it's, I, I haven't actually ever given these medications to someone who's pregnant because I've always been able to have a conversation with mums about, you know, high-dose NRT. But theoretically, we do give drugs that are category B, category C to women who are pregnant all the time. And really, if you're going to take the harm reduction approach, is it better to have a drug that's category B or C, or is it better to have 20 cigarettes a day? I'd rather have, I'd, I, I, if it was up to me, I would rather have um, the medication. What would you say to that? I think from a harm reduction point of view, that makes perfect sense. Like you, I haven't thus far in my career had to give any of those medications to, to a pregnant woman. Usually um, the first two interventions of behavioural counselling and NRT seem to mm. work relatively well. But I would not be philosophically opposed to doing that if our goal is harm reduction and preventing all the harms associated with smoking, it makes sense after giving the patient informed decision-making to trial one of these medications and, and see if it does aid in smoking cessation. So, yeah, philosophically not opposed. So, Fergal, that topic brings me to the next aspect that I wanted to discuss, which is the rate of relapse to smoking once a woman has delivered her child. What do you do to help a woman decrease the risk of relapse to smoking? once she's delivered her, her child? Well, I mean, firstly, you need to understand that there is a significant risk of relapse. Approximately 50% of women will relapse back to smoking after, after abstinence during pregnancy. And the, the, the risk is actually lower if mums breastfeed. So the first thing I would do is always encourage mums to breastfeed, even if they... Um, if they, even if they don't exclusively breastfeed, I think that, that, that breastfeeding is a really important part of the, the bonding experience between mom and baby, and it contributes to so many health benefits. So the first thing I do is to encourage breastfeeding. The next thing I do is to actually try and continue with the, NRT, the, the therapy that I was using during pregnancy. So usually that's nicotine replacement therapy. So I'm very happy to continue using nicotine replacement therapy during lactation. Um, you know, there's a, a figure in my mind that basically any drug will, will be fined in breast milk to basically 1% to 2% of the maternal dose. So, you know, uh, nicotine does accumulate in breast milk, but the levels are so low. And I think actually it's better for mum uh, to be on NRT than it is to smoke, not only because of uh, mum's overall health benefits, but also um, at, at nicotine. Uh, replacement therapy stops the smoking, which is associated with a reduction in the ability to breastfeed. So you're actually, with NRT, 
you're actually encouraging and promoting breastfeeding because, you know, smoking inhibits the actual act of breastfeeding. It reduces the letdown reflex and also reduces the flow of milk. And following on from what we were discussing in the earlier segment on this episode, what about bupropion, varinocline, and nortriptyline in lactation? If one were to use those medications, what's your views on the safety of breastfeeding in in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about risks and benefits, but overall I'd be happy to continue these medications or in fact start these medications because, you know, remember, we're talking about stopping someone from smoking during pregnancy. Um, And really I think it's up to clinicians to consult local um, guidelines on the risks of these medications in breastfeeding. Uh, however, if I can surmise, basically, the, 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 all of the guidance that I've read suggests that it's acceptable to introduce these medications during breastfeeding. It's not a contraindication. Absolutely. Now, to segue a bit away from uh, pregnancy, another special population with regards to smoking is people with mental health diagnoses or mental health disorders. And we talked in an earlier episode of Cracking Addiction about the fact that uh, trying smoking cessation interventions in people who are undergoing withdrawal for other substances does not decrease the efficacy of their withdrawal management. But Fergal, would you mind commenting a bit about the A, the prevalence of smoking in people with mental health diagnosis and the significant impacts that this has on the patient's mortality and mental health indeed. Yeah. So I think that you've got to understand that the prevalence of smoking amongst people with mental health disorders is significantly higher than background population. So remember, the prevalence in Australia of smoking is about 11%. Now, studies have demonstrated that, you know, disorder-specific prevalences are increasing. For instance, you know, people with anxiety disorders one study demonstrated a 38% increase in prevalence of smoking, or rather demonstrated that 38% of patients with that diagnosis smoked. 45 patients, uh, sorry, 45% of patients with affective disorders smoked. 64% of patients with substance use disorders smoked. And patients with schizophrenia were found to be five times more likely to smoke. So really what we're seeing is that if you've got a mental health disorder, or if you've got a substance use disorder, you are more likely to be smoking than not, and your prevalence of smoking is higher than that of background in the general population. Now, the impact of that is enormous. And would you care to comment on the impact of smoking within these groups? Absolutely. So smoking is associated with an increased risk of developing mental health disorders. And we also know that people with mental health disorders such as depression are overrepresented in in people who smoke. And tobacco smoking is associated with an increased severity of bipolar disorder as as manifested by increased risks of relapse and higher numbers of hospitalizations as well. And tobacco smoking is also associated as a major risk factor for all-cause mortality in patients with mental health disorders. So in summary, the impact of cigarette and tobacco use in mental health disorders is huge. It is a condition and an aspect of mental health management that I think is not treated as aggressively as it should be 
And we should all be very aggressively trying to stop people smoking who have mental health diagnoses. Would you agree with that, Fergal? Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important to understand that actually the mortality of mental health disorders is actually more related to smoking than actually the mental health disorder itself. And clinicians who fail to recognize that fact and fail to act upon that really are doing their patients a disservice. Um, and there are benefits to uh, smoking cessation. Well, you know, would you care to touch on that? So the benefits with smoking cessation with regards to people with mental health disorders are that people can get significant mental health gains, especially with regards to stress, anxiety and depression mm -hmm. and managing those symptoms as well. And a systematic review um, has found that the beneficial effects of smoking cessation found that there was consistent evidence that stopping smoking is associated with improvements in depression, anxiety, as well as an improved quality of life as well compared to continuing with smoking. So yeah. this is quite good evidence that stopping smoking instead of hindering someone's mental health diagnosis can actually improve their mental health diagnosis paradoxically. And we're always very worried about worsening someone's mental health outcome by stopping smoking and, and worrying about other kind of conditions as well. So I guess, Fergal, and this brings us to a, a topic we discussed slightly earlier, but when we're talking about assisting someone with stopping smoking, we do talk about varenicline and bupropion, and we had previously hinted to the fact that there were very significant concerns about worsening mental health conditions with these medications and the neuropsychiatric side effects of these medications. Could you delve a bit deeper into um, this aspect of managing um, smoking cessation or treating smoking cessation per se? Yeah, so... The, prior to the EAGLE study, there was this view that you couldn't give renicline or, or be programmed to people with significant mental health disorders for fear of worsening mental health status. The EAGLE study is the key study that basically exonerated uh, these two medications. And I'm going to read from the, the abstract of the EAGLE study. So I'm just going to read this. The study was a large randomized, double-blind, triple-dummy, placebo-controlled, and active-controlled trial of varenicline and bupropion. And the authors stated in their conclusion, and I'm going to read the conclusion now, the study did not show a significant increase in neuropsychiatric adverse events attributable to varenicline or bupropion relative to nicotine patch or placebo. Varenicline was more effective than placebo, nicotine patch and bupropion in helping smokers achieve abstinence, whereas bupropion and nicotine patch were more effective than placebo. So really what this study did is put varenicline on the map in terms of uh, mental health management and of smoking cessation. It does not cause any worsening in the risk of adverse side effects, and it works. It's better than all of the other uh, therapies. And this has actually uh, been translated into clinical practice guidelines. So, for instance, the Maudsley guidelines now specifically state, and they specifically quote the EAGLE study, and they specifically state that varenicline and bupropion are appropriate interventions to treat people with, uh, to, to treat uh, people who smoke with uh, smoking cessation interventions, even in the context of significant mental health disorders. 
So the Eagle study was the key study that put varenicline and bupropion on the map, and this has now been translated into the Maudsley guidelines. So without question, it is entirely reasonable to give these medications to patients with mental health disorders who continue to smoke. One of the last things I guess I wanted to talk about in this episode was the role of cigarette use and tobacco use with enzyme induction. Could you elaborate a bit about that and what we should be concerned about and watching out for in our patients who smoke? Yeah, so, you know, cigarettes contain uh, PAHs, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and PAHs are all enzyme inductors. So in particular, they induce enzymes on the, the cytochrome P450 system, and in particular, the isoenzymes 1A2, C1, C19, 3A4, and 2E1. This has important knock-on effects for a lot of the medications that are used, especially in the psychiatric management of patients, and in particular, benzodiazepines such as diazepam, haloperidol, olanzapine, clozapine, metazapine, tricyclics, barbiturates. If you are using these medications in someone who smokes, and then they are admitted as an inpatient or they go to a detox facility and then they are, then they stop smoking. They are, or rather they're, 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 they're no longer able to smoke. And then they're given a nicotine patch. Remember, the nicotine patch does not have the PAHs in it. It's just got nicotine in it. So all of a sudden you are stopping their exposure to PAHs, the polycyclic aromatic uh, hydrocarbons. So therefore the enzyme induction effect is going to dramatically stop. And so some estimates is that the enzyme activity reduces by half every two days back to baseline. So within, you know, within, within a week, basically, you have got no enzyme induction. And therefore, the plasma levels of these drugs that were previously stable are now rapidly increasing. And so you need to take into account this effect. So you need to watch closely patients who are on these medications. And you need to be prepared to lower the dose of these medications to meet their requirements due to uh, having assessed them regularly and frequently, especially during the first week of, a, of an admission. And the converse is true as well. If they then get discharged and then start smoking again, you can expect their drug levels to fall precipitously again. And so therefore, back in the community, should they choose to smoke again, their doses need to go up again. And I have seen this in clinical practice. I've also I've particularly seen this with uh, olanzapine and clozapine in clinical practice, especially in the context of someone being admitted to a psych unit on methadone, olanzapine, and um, presenting with sedation. So they'd stop smoking, and of course their olanzapine levels went up, their, meta their methadone levels went up, and they were over-sedated. I've seen it in clinical practice, so it's really quite uh, remarkable how quickly this can happen. Absolutely. So... In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've talked about special populations with regards to smoking cessation. We've talked about the importance in smoking cessation intervention in pregnant women, those with mental health diagnoses, and also the fact that smoking cigarettes does induce enzymes that can affect the metabolism of certain medications and drugs that we prescribe and how we need to be vigilant about this and review our patients frequently to make sure that they are being treated appropriately. It's been another action-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks for your attention and bye for now.